miss that music, Bernie, at the end. Sort of a great way to liven up summer, isn't it? You can work it in every time? Oh, that's great. Well, kia ora, good morning, everybody. Um, I can see we've got a big crowd today, so welcome back to many people who have been away. Uh, this morning, as we round out this series that we've called our summer series, uh, I'm going to be talking about something very important that you're part of right now, and that's the church. The church. What is the church? Who is the church? What we're about? And uh, for many of you, you'll have different images flooding into your mind about what it is that I'm going to lead towards today. This picture in behind here is actually a picture of the first church in New Zealand, the Anglican church that's in Russell. And uh, maybe there's a little bit of uh, uh, irony or cynicism in there, but it's actually got a few bullet holes in it, quite literally, uh, from the early days of uh, some... um, should we say, activity that went on there. It was nothing to do with a church meeting. It was actually um, more about uh, some land wars going on. Uh, But it's intriguing, isn't it? And so for us this morning, as we talk about church, um, we we need to start and look at how it is that God has created the church. We need to look at our own role in it, our own place in it. Uh, Because church is God's idea. God's idea. And uh, for us as people who are seeking God, wanting to know God's will for our lives, uh, to be integrated into part of the church is to actually fulfill a part of what God's call for you is. In other words, you are formed, you are shaped by being part of the church. And I'll tell you what the critical key to this is. The thing that you bring to be part of the church and to allow the church to shape you and inform you starts with this. Okay, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Can you do that? Just turn. (laughs) Right. Now, there's a second part to this, and this will be harder because what you've just said is a theological statement. But this is a personal statement that rolls out of the theological statement. And I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, therefore, I'm not often as right as I think I am. That was harder to say, wasn't it? That was harder to say. But church can only operate if we have a spirit of humility. Yeah? Truly, it can only operate if you have a spirit of humility. If you honestly turn up and think you're God's gift to God, then you're in trouble. Okay? And we're in trouble. Now, no church is, is perfect. We know that. Uh, church is not a showcase for saints. It's a, a collection point for sinners. And we need to understand that. And that's the point of view that I'm working from this morning. Uh, If you're looking for a perfect church, you're out of luck because I'm here. Okay? (laughs) And uh, in all honesty, I suspect over time, over the 25 years I've been here, I've let you down. There will be times when you've had expectations or I've said the wrong thing, done the wrong thing. And um, that is something that I can only apologize for, uh, not as a point of confession, but just as a point of being a human being. Is that fair to say? Okay. Actually, if you look in the scriptures and find where God promised you perfect leadership, let me know, because he doesn't. Okay. Which gives me a little bit of a break at times. The other thing about the church that I love is that it's international. It's international. As there's this global network of people who are uh, infatuated with Jesus, who, are, who understand his story and recognize how that story connects with us as individuals. And uh, I've had a few occasions over the years where I've taken a wedding, an international wedding, uh, a couple where one comes from another country, from a different nation, and another might be from New Zealand. 
and the very common point of reference will be their faith. Okay, we're learning about each other's culture, but we know Jesus together. And so you see this point of connection. And today there's a myriad of people, even in the auditorium today, who have huge amount of uh, different backstories, different cultures, different experiences, different ages. And yet here we are together under this one banner called the church, the body of Christ. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I, um, so I want us to have a look at some scripture this morning. We're going to have a look at um, what the church is, what the church isn't, how the society around us views the church. And then I'm going to finish um, in a bit of a different way today. But uh, let's have a look at how Paul describes the church uh, from the book, from the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then, mir then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. All, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. This is a, an amazing statement, not just because it talks about the breadth of the church and our place in it, but there's a sense in which right from the outset of the church, there's been a division of labor. Okay? We celebrate Henry Ford. Henry Ford, that great industrialist who gave us Ford Motor Company, uh, was celebrated because he was the first person to go into industry and create the production line, where the, the labor of, the, of building the, the Model T, which was his classic, uh, became divided up over hundreds and hundreds of little jobs until out popped the other end was a car. Now, the division of labor is not so much of a production line for us. I think it could be helpful for us at one level if we could set up a production line for Christians. Imagine that, just taking Christians through on a production line going, yeah, he needs a little bit more love. He's got an attitude that needs correcting and uh, he has no understanding of uh, the needs of the poor, so we'll give him a bit of that and out pops a perfect Christian. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? Maybe it wouldn't. Okay, <laughs> I think it would be ideal. However, for us, we need to look at what the body of Christ is and where our part is in it. We're all called to be part of this body and therefore we should be looking as as Paul says at the final part of that verse today, seeking the greater gifts. In other words, pressing into God, saying, God, where do I fit in? How do I find my place in the church? What is it that I bring in my humility, in my imperfection, in my I've got things to learn attitude? Okay, there we go. If we could all pull that together, uh, we'd be an unstoppable force. All right. But this verse goes on to describe something else. And this is really, really important. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men, of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, from here, the scripture rolls into that classic uh, passage of scripture that we use often at wedding. Where we say, uh, it talks about love being kind, love does not envy, love does not boast. Okay, But for now, what Paul is describing is how the body of Christ works. And love is the key. 
Now, here's the important thing. Love is not the destination. Love is not the destination. Love is the grease that allows the parts of the body of Christ to operate together. So in the passage that we've just seen earlier on, look at this. We've just seen a list of some of the gifts. These other passages that have this, this list of gifts expanded in a really exploded version. Okay, but uh, what Paul is describing here is here are the gifts. What makes the gifts work and how do they cooperate together? It is love that brings it together. Love is the grease that makes the church work. The goal is to make Christ known. Love is not the goal. You see, if love is the goal, love becomes an idol. And we love at all costs and we compromise the gospel itself. Just look at the liberal church and how they have gone down a path of saying it's all about social action and love is the goal, love is the outworking of everything about Jesus. No, the mission and making Christ known is the outworking of everything about Jesus. Okay? So love is the ability to, love is what we need, the grease to allow the body of Christ to work together. So when we look at the body of Christ, um, we've got to understand what this purpose is that God has for us as the body. The body is not to come and to critique the music on a Sunday, to critique the preacher, to test the quality of the coffee, uh, or how quickly the car parking attendants can get out of your way before you run them over. No, I know they're there for your entertainment, okay? But um, it's not, the goal is not to run them over. Okay, so there's a whole lot of reasons for being. But to know Christ is the reason the church exists and to make him known is our purpose. It uh, says here, but whatever were gains to me, Paul writes to the Philippian church, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. See that? Knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and he be found and, I, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Three times Paul says, it's all about knowing Christ and even suffering and everything that his life counted for before meeting Christ, he considered garbage, okay? And yet Paul is not so arrogant as to say he's arrived because he goes on and says this. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which, God, which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Amen. Great passages of scripture. Hey, I, I think the person who put this together must be pretty outstanding. You know, I think God's word's pretty amazing because it tells us about who we are, where we're heading. But uh, for the church, let's, let's take an example. Sorry, not use an example. Let's just take a look at that final statement. Paul says there, only let us live up to what we have already attained. 
So Paul is saying that we should be able to reach a level of maturity and push on from there. Okay? Push on from there. And Paul has already said to the Corinthians that we should desire the greater gifts. In other words, let's be in a position where we take more responsibility for the things of the kingdom. Press on, push in, press on, push in. Pray, seek, fellowship in humility. Love one another. Allow those wheels of, of compassion, the wheels of grace, the wheels of mercy that exists within the life of a church community to, to be greased, if you like, with love so that this love that we have here starts to permeate the community in which we live. You see, the beauty of the church is that it, it doesn't begin and end here. Because church exists in your home, church exists in the marketplace, and church exists in a form uh, in so many different variations around this city, this nation, okay? And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing time to be the church, to be quite honest, because the church has always prospered when it's been pushed to the margins, because when it gets to the margins, what happens, it reinvents itself. So don't ever be concerned about the place where people say, oh, the church is dead, the church is dying. Okay, that's not the case at all. The church is reinventing itself. It's learning once again to be a powerful force working within the community, not an iconic facade that overrides or overshadows the community. Remember, we serve Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus came from the margins. He wasn't Jesus from Jerusalem. That's a huge statement, isn't it? Jesus from Nazareth is the guy who came from the little place out of the middle of nowhere, where people commented and said, what good comes from Nazareth? What good comes from the margins? He wasn't Jesus from Jerusalem. Big statement, big name. Jesus from Nazareth. So the church is God's way of permeating society. And you do that every time you walk out of these doors. Church is unique. Now I'm going to introduce you to something that I read in the, uh, that was passed on to me by my daughter, actually. Um, here is a, a newspaper article, and it's only a portion of this article that I'm going to show you now, that was printed in the Canberra Times just a week ago. Now, over in Australia, we know that they've had some real hard times with those bushfires, right? And uh, the popular way of dealing with anything in Australia at the moment is to give the Prime Minister a hard time because apparently he started the bushfires. Okay, so they've got this game where they allow their Prime Ministers about 18 months and they kick them out. That's been the way it's been. And uh, I'm not joking, I laugh with this with my Australian colleagues and friends that I know. So Scott Morrison is under the gun. People are in the streets protesting, saying it's his, res his response to these bushfires has been abysmal. Right. Here's the name of the article. The left, i.e. the protesters, need to change the way it thinks about protest. And here is the article. It's going to take me about two minutes to read this. This is only a truncated version. On Friday, thousands of Aussies took to the streets for the SAC SCOMO, Scott Morrison, climate protest. It's a natural move for progressive people. We have no other rituals for dealing with grief and sorrow. No shared spaces to gather to console each other. We don't have a network of buildings in which to regularly meet, commemorate, support, uplift, and organize for the, future, for the political future that we want. So on cue, given the current bushfire crisis, we hit the streets and disrupt. Okay, talking about the left, that's the way they do things. 
I support the freedom to associate and the right to protest, but I worry that the climate movement is too heavily reliant on street protests when there are other less eye-catching but incredibly powerful ways to organize for social change. Every weekend, about one and a half million of our neighbors quietly come together. They gather in suburbs all across the country, black and white, old and young, rich and poor, in a radical political incubator called the church. What if we directed the big bursts of energy from the protests into smaller, more frequent gatherings? What if a life lived in protest involved taking time out every weekend together and serve your local community to join together under a more unified story, young and old, to sing songs, read ancient wisdom literature, meditate, serve the poor, and develop dense networks with people beyond our immediate interest groups? Because that's what conservative religious organisations, arguably some of the most powerful and protector groups in Australia, are doing. Churches offer belonging and meaning. They have teams whose job is to welcome and befriend new people every weekend. They have incredible sound systems and talented rock bands that perform every weekend. They make thinking philosophically fun every weekend. They encourage you to explore your life's purpose every weekend. They'll give you a break from your lovely but exhausting children every weekend. <laughs> In spite of dogma, religious communities offer positive mental health benefits. According to social researcher Hugh Mackay, community service, faith in something larger than oneself, and creative expression are all calm balms to anxiety. So in the wake of the bushfire crisis, while we progressives stoke our anger, vent on social media, and get more stressed and depressed, they use ancient practices to care for souls. They make music, share food, read, pray, and play, all the while reinforcing their core beliefs. That's about half of the article, okay? I did, for, obviously for purposes of today. But uh, you can pick it up in the Canberra Times, okay? And uh, it's funny how an outsider probably does a better summary of who we are <laughs> than we ourselves and the church can bring, all right? So the church is unique, and we just saw an example of why it is unique, why it is unique. Um, let me just spin it this, this another way. I shouldn't use the word spin. It sounds like I'm trying to have you on. But um, back in the early 2000s, a movement started called Sunday Assembly. This is a non-religious church, a secular church. Started in the States, took off in Europe. Uh, there was a few uh, plantings of it here in New Zealand. And the goal was that you meet together, you sing together, you look after each, children's, each other's children together, uh, you, you eat food together, you listen to an inspirational speaker. And in doing so, you are church without the religious stuff, which sounds intriguing. Have you heard about it? No. Because it came and it went like a meteor. There were a lot of people gathering around this idea, but the problem with this is that the purpose of meeting was the only purpose to meet. You see, the church has a purpose bigger than itself. It is sacrificial. It is wanting to serve Christ. It's wanting to, A, learn to be more like Christ, and then to be Christ to our neighbor and our community and the world around us. So the Sunday assembly was really like a boat without a keel, or maybe even without a sail. It was sort of like a little come-together party boat without a purpose. And after a period of time, it went like a meteor, shined like a bright star, then fizzled out very, very quickly. Okay? And 
There's a few remnants around, apparently, of it, but it hasn't made any long-term impact or long-term uh, statement about how to do life. So the church is, in some sense, um, we can use some, some illustrations. The church is an ark, okay? And I use that term ark to describe a place of salvation that, of course, Noah built the ark and the animals and his family were saved. And it's an illustration to us of salvation because the Christian story about Christ is indeed in itself a story and an act of salvation. You know, the story of the cross is this, is that Christ went through hell so we wouldn't have to. It's as simple as that. Okay, so it's a place of salvation for us, the church. It's also a hospital. And that's very, very intentional because Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. In other words, when you give a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty, if you give food to somebody who is struggling, be it in your neighborhood or around the world, uh, you're doing this on my behalf, okay? On my behalf. And uh, a few years ago when I was the Baptist National Leader, I remember with other denominational leaders sitting in John Key's office talking about the plight of the poor within New Zealand. And he said, you guys are motivated to serve the poor. For us, it's a real problem politically. What do we do? How do we serve the poor? And uh, I need you to get alongside us to help us achieve the outcomes we want to achieve. And I said to, I said, Mr. Key, with all respect, I said, we have a very different worldview to an answer to this problem. And I said, for us, we're motivated by something far more, um, uh, far more, I suppose, religious, I think was the term I used, just to try to help him understand what I was going. I said, look, <clears throat> Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So whilst your desire to serve the poor is politically motivated, Ours is an act of worship. Ours is an act of worship. And so for us, when we offer the hospital side of our church, hospital side of our community, to, to express who Christ is, that's an act of worship to Jesus, isn't it? Yeah? Whatever you do for the least of these. Of course, church is a training center. And I don't say this in a formal way. I say this in a formal slash informal way. When you mix with other people and you get to know them, you get to know their lifestyle, there's a rub that happens, isn't there? You would have had this happen. You would have met people and there's something about them, some quality, and you've gone, wow, there's I really like that person. What's going on in their life? How is it that they are serving Jesus? How are they getting to know Jesus? What are their rhythms? What are their patterns? What are their priorities? And we learn and we rub. And um, it's really, really important, this, this rub, because within the context of relationships, we learn how to be followers of Jesus. Now, I just want to put this out there. And um, I've, been, I've been here 25 years. And that means that I'm now marrying off the young people whom I dedicated when they were first born. Okay, and that's a real privilege. Okay, that's a real privilege. Um, <clears throat> but um, over decades, so literally over decades, I've had... And this has come home to roost in this last six weeks for me, so this is why I'm, I'm raising this with you. Um, I've had conversations with families who have said, we're, we're done with church. We think we're just going to be Christians. We're going to do our own thing at home. We'll have devotions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we don't think church is all that it's cracked up to be. We're just going to raise our family as Christians. Now, in the last six weeks, I've had two encounters with those families whom I had this conversation with 12 to 15 years ago. 
And in both scenarios, their kids aren't walking with the Lord. Okay? They aren't walking with the Lord. And you can see the grief. You can feel it. It's tangible within them. Because Jesus is a really important part of the parent's life. And yet it hasn't been able to be transferred by virtue of being that solitary unit. And it would be an unloving thing of me not to say what I'm just saying now. But for the families that I've been able to watch grow and continue to prosper in the faith, they say, look, we, we really commit ourselves to church and it's the exception that takes us away. Sunday morning, we get out of bed, we take the kids, it's how we roll, we serve, we, we honour God, we honour each other and our community is built around people who have a common interest in the person of Jesus and his work making him known. Okay, so don't fool yourself and don't be fooled. Okay, if you, if you want to raise your family with a part-time Jesus, um, you'll find that Jesus will be part-time and then he will, he will break into parts. Okay, and uh, it's, it's honestly, it's all I can say. It's my observation of 25 years and um, the grief is, is perpetual. The grief is perpetual when we see our children not walking with the Lord. So I'm not putting it on you. I'm just saying what I've observed. The church is also an army. Now, I don't think in terms of bullets and blood. Think in terms of momentum. Okay, because the church is, uh, is resourced and the church is focused. And mission has been happening ever since the church began at Pentecost. Okay, when the church was born at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem on that day, that amazing day, when the Holy Spirit empowered people, filled people, the church has been on mission ever since. And for us, be it across the fence or uh, in our workplace or with our family or across the nations, the church is indeed an army that is devoted to ensuring that the message of Christ is heard. And I'm always excited about it when I see missionaries come back and like we just had this morning, returning, talking about their story, what it is that God did, and ensuring that we, the church, here at this part of the globe, at the, the bottom end of the planet, so to speak, we all know that we're on the top, but the, 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 you know, the northern kingdom's got to write the map. So, um, well, it's obvious, isn't it? The heavy stuff is at the bottom. So, you know... <laughs> Anyway, that, I distract myself. I distract myself. <clears throat> so we're an army. But I want to finish this morning by doing something a little bit different. Because I, I, I don't think you can describe the church in a way that's just with words filling the air. I think there's something, um, it's spiritual, of course. But there's something that resembles art in the life of the church, just the way people's lives fuse together. It's like beautiful color. It's like beautiful music, isn't it? The way God works. It's like a symphony. And uh, I'm going to play a piece of music in a moment. In a moment, I'm going to ask the, the boys to put it on. Um, <clears throat> it's a piece of classical music. Uh, it's 300 and 340 years old, Okay. Uh, it's by a, um, a German composer by the name of Johann Pascabel, okay? And it's just simply called his Canon in D. It doesn't even have a name. You'll be familiar with it, though. I'm sure you've heard this before. But the beginning of this music is that there are, there are eight notes, two bars, eight notes, that just repeat themselves all the way through this four minutes of music, 
Okay, they just repeat. And they're an underlying score. It's played largely by a cello. This, this piece is only played with a, a cello and three violins. Okay. And uh, looking at the violin player amongst us here, he's trying to work out what it is. But this, this cycle of eight notes just goes throughout the whole song. And what happens is layers and layers and layers of more music are added on top of this, this resounding rhythm. And I liken it to the, the church because the church is devoted to the story of Christ crucified and resurrected. Okay? That is the eight notes of our story. Okay? And without those, that story being at the baseline of this, this thing called the church, we would lose our way. We would lose our way, absolutely lose our way. We just become a good works club, a social service agency, an international needs type focused at best, but we would lose our way. And so this is why this piece of music, I think, uh, is important for me. But what I want you to do, I'm going to um, put this music on, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to do my best to describe the picture that I see of the church. And I hope you can see it with me. Thanks. You'll hear the, this rhythm slowly starting.
ourselves with the story and we refresh ourselves in God's love. Church is something we feel. Church is something that we are. It's bigger than all of us. It's intertwined. It's a song that God sings over us in love. And all I can say is embrace it. In your humble, I'm not perfect, I've got a lot to learn way. I'm going to invite the music team to come and lead us. Let me finish. You just go to the last, the second to last slide for me there. Josiah, thanks. Just bring up the scripture there. The writer of the Hebrews said, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day approaching, it's the day of Christ's return. Encourage one another. Be the church. Be the church in your home. And finally, let Jesus have the final words. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we thank you that in your divine imagination that you invented the church, the bride of Christ. For us, Lord, the privilege of belonging is something that we don't deserve. The ticket in has been paid by you. Your grace sustains us and it's your love in the midst of us that allows us to be the church. And so we just want to put the church in a high place again. It's not just people. We are a divine act, a sign and a wonder in itself to the world. Even as we've seen today, they have tried to mirror it, they've tried to reproduce it, and indeed they even covered it. But it's unique because you're at the very core. May the eight bars of your story continue to resonate within us forever. May we layer upon layer build the church, but never ever leave those eight bars behind. The story of your death and the story of your resurrection. God, we're so grateful.